you would go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We have been walking through this marvelous gospel chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeing the unfolding ministry of Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10 today. Before we begin into much of that, I just want us to reflect upon a question for a moment. What is it that makes a leader easy to follow? Not all leaders are easy to follow, right? We know this. There are other individuals that perhaps we have had to work for them or uh, we've observed them or had to interact with them at different levels. And just They are not the easiest individuals to follow. They are not the easiest individuals to, to listen to their instruction and to uh, follow after whatever it is that they are seeking to direct you to do. I've certainly had my fair share of supervisors who uh, just weren't super. That's an excellent way to put it. Yeah, they, they just did. They weren't the greatest at uh, getting people to accomplish the task that needed to be accomplished. And there are many leaders who would love nothing more to answer the question, what is it that makes a leader easy to follow? How can I get more individuals to follow me to do what I'm trying to direct them to do? And so there's a whole host of leadership literature that has been written to try to answer this question. What makes a leader easy to follow? A quick Google search on the question makes, what makes a leader easy to follow? It, it, it yields a multitude of results, and we, there are a whole host of blog posts and even entire books that have been written answering this very question. And so we find lists about, well, this is how you are to interact with your subordinates. And so, well, you need to have a sense of humor. You need to be willing to incorporate other people's ideas and a whole host of different things. And I came across a book titled, the easy-to-follow leader. So there are lots of resources trying to teach people on how to be a leader that is easy to follow and so that, so that you can accomplish whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, how you can gain your followership. But as I was perusing the different lists, as I was looking through the different things that people were suggesting, different ideas that were being presented, something that I found to be missing from the list the concepts of humility. See, many of these lists had to do with, this is how you interact with people. This is how you try to, try to get people to do what you want them to do. And it, 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 look at it, it almost felt manipulative in a way. Well, you just, you just got to pull these strings. You just got to word things in this way. And then people will begin to follow you. What was missing was character traits, humility, kindness, Jesus has different words for us. As we think about the different ways that the world tries to, to gain followers, the different ways that the world tries to get people to do what they want them to do, Jesus has another approach. And it flows out of humility. In our text today, we're going to see what it looks like to follow Jesus and He's going to, again, we've been walking through this the last few chapters and seeing the, the way that Jesus has been predicting His death, anticipating the suffering that He is going to endure. And, and every time he, he comes around to teaching the disciples about His death and about His suffering, there's a misunderstanding on the disciples' part and even just arrogance on behalf of the disciples as they are arguing about who is the greatest among them. 
And we see another cycle of that continue on within this text as Jesus is going to predict His death once again. And then James and John are going to make what may be the most audacious request that could be made to our Lord in this context. We are in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 32, and let's read this together. Mark writes, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of, for, of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Lord, I once again just ask that you would guide our time together today. Help us to learn from this text today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we have Jesus on the road, and the first thing I want us to notice from this text is the scene in which these events take place. First thing we see is that they are on the road, they're traveling. Verse 32 says that, that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. See, verse 32 is going to provide for us the necessary backdrop, the, the, the background information that helps us understand a little bit of the conversation that is going to take place between Jesus and His disciples. So notice where they're going. They're going to Jerusalem. This is the destination that is in view. Jesus has taught them that this is the direction that they are going to go. He, he has taught them what awaits them in Jerusalem. And now they are on that road. And they are traveling to that destination. They are definitively moving to Jerusalem. 
Notice also that Jesus is leading the way. The text says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. There's Jesus, He's up in front, and then all of His disciples, those who are following Him, they are taking up the rears as they go along. Many disciples following. But notice what it says about the disciples. There's, there's two things that it says about them, about, about their state, about how they are, just the things that they're thinking as they're moving along. It says, first, that they are amazed. And that might prompt us to ask the question, well, amazed at what? Why are they amazed? What, what has got them amazed? Well, if we recall our text from last week, remember what Jesus has taught them, and which Jim covered so well for us last week. Jesus has said that it's easier to go through the eye for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's a heavy statement right there. I don't know about you, but I have not seen very many camel-sized needle eyes lately. They don't exist. But then Jesus goes on to say, With man it is indeed impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. The rich can be saved. Those who would be considered the, the elites can come to repentance, but it requires humility. See, for each and every one of us, the call to repent and believe in the gospel is truly a humbling command. For we were to come to that place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we have to recognize that we cannot save ourselves, that, that none of our good works can do anything to save us, to, to bring us into a right relationship with God. And that is a humbling thing to admit. Admitting that we are not good enough, strong enough, or powerful enough to save ourselves is humbling. But praise the Lord, with God, all things are possible. As we have that tremendously good news. Jesus recognized that this can be a hard thing to embrace. This is why it is, it is difficult for the rich man to come. He has all these possessions. He does not want to give them up. Well, Peter pipes up and says, oh, hey, we've given up everything. Everything. We, we've surrendered everything to follow you. Jesus says, well, there's, there is reward for that. There is blessing for that. He says, truly, there, there's none who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. That's another amazing statement right there. We, we receive all this blessing. There is recompense for having to giving up our material goods. And yet, it comes with persecutions as well. It can be hard for some to embrace Jesus Christ because that can be a very risky thing to do. For some individuals, coming to Jesus Christ means giving up everything that they know. Think of different people around the world, how costly it is to claim the name of Christ. Your family could cut you off. You could lose your job. You could lose your life. For others, maybe they have fame or notoriety, and coming to faith in Jesus Christ may put all of that at risk. Think of a 
pretty high-profile example of that within this last year is this Kat Von D. And I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to know the genuineness of her faith or, or anything of that nature, but the path that she is currently walking right now seems to be a good path, but very costly from a worldly perspective. So it's humbling, but it, but it does come with that promise that, that there is blessing in Christ, that, that the Lord will receive, you will receive heavenly recompense. So yes, the disciples are amazed. As Peter says, hey, we've left everything to follow you. So, hey, hey, look at that great reward that I've got coming to me. Perhaps that has them amazed. But amazement is not the only emotion being felt. What does it say? They were amazed, and those who followed were what? Afraid. They're afraid. They're fearful. Well, what would cause them to have that fear within them? Again, perhaps it's the persecutions that Jesus mentioned. Yeah, there is these, these blessings of being in Christ and all these things that we receive in Christ as being part of the, the family of Christ. But there's also persecutions that come to those who name the name of Christ. There's also this reality that many who are first will be last. So perhaps it's because those who receive those blessings, uh, they receive them specifically because of the loss that they endured. And the thought of that loss is fearful. Perhaps they're fearful because of the unnerving reality that the road into the kingdom is so narrow that it causes people like the rich young ruler to fall off the path. Perhaps it's because they realize that they are indeed on that road to Jerusalem and they know what Jesus has said awaits him there. They have been told what to expect. That Jesus says he will be handed over and he will die. One scholar that I read this week said that the fear could be due to the anticipation of a civil war in Jerusalem if Jesus attempts to establish his messianic rulership there. Peter has declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus has affirmed that declaration. And the Messiah, of course, was one who was finally to cast off Rome, to restore the kingdom to Israel. But Jesus is not exactly on friendly terms with the religious elite that are there in Jerusalem at present. And Rome isn't exactly going to just roll over and die and just let Jesus take over, right? So there was sure to be a fight. There was sure to be a revolution of sorts. And if that is indeed where their minds were, fear might be very well understandable in that context. Ultimately, we do have to recognize that this is, this is a bit speculative. The text doesn't say why they are afraid, but it just recognizes that they are fearful of something. Well, that backdrop of amazement and fear does set the stage for us because here in the year of 2023, uh, those of us who still desire to follow Jesus, we may have our own fears about the way that He is leading us in each of our own individual life contexts. And Mark helps us to see ourselves in the disciples as if He's holding up a mirror to us. But we can have confidence as we follow our Master. We need not follow Him in fear. We need not follow Him in fear. 
because we are following the one who knows the way. We are following the one who knows the way. Jesus takes the twelve aside. He says to them in the end of verse uh, 32 and going into 33, taking the twelve aside to begin to tell them what's going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Tells them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus, Jesus has his sights set on a destination. He knows where he is going. And all throughout this gospel, we have seen that Jesus, all along the way, he has been in control of his own ministry. Where he goes, what he does, he doesn't let other people dictate that for him, but he sets the agenda and he sets the pace. He reveals himself according to his own time scale and removes himself from situations when it is not yet the time for him to be fully revealed. Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows why he is going. The Son of Man will be delivered. They will condemn Him to death. They will mock Him. They will kill Him. Jesus has His sight set on His mission. And nothing will deter Him from it. Jesus knows not only what He must do, He knows how it will all play out. He knows that the road is hard. He knows that it leads through suffering, that it leads to death, but He also knows that He will come out the other side victorious, that He will not stay dead, that He will rise again. You know, this is the third time that Jesus has gone through these predictions with His disciples. As we have seen, we've gone through the first two cycles, chapter 8, chapter 9. Now here we are in chapter 10, the third cycle. And with each time, there's familiar elements within each prediction. With each suffering prediction, Jesus communicates the same core truths. I will be handed over, they will kill me, and I will rise again. But with this prediction, it is the fullest prediction. There's the most detail within this prediction. And here Jesus adds more detail about the suffering that he is to endure. The mockery, the spitting, the flogging, and the death. can help but see that Jesus' emphasis upon this with this cycle is, is due to the disciples' thirst for notoriety, which we will see in a moment. Right As they've walked along the road in, in chapter 9, we saw that they were arguing amongst themselves about which of them was the greatest, which of them was the best of the disciples. So Jesus emphasizes the suffering to remind them of what is to come. They're headed to Jerusalem and it's not going to be pretty. Though the crowds will initially welcome him, right? They're, they're going to welcome him in. Hosanna, Hosanna to the King, the Son of David. But there will be no coronation. There will be no revolution. There will only be suffering and death for the Messiah. 
But even as he predicts that death, he does give them that hope once again. Three days later, I will rise from the dead. This is the way. This is what must happen. This is what Isaiah foretold. This is what God has designed. So Jesus, being in complete control of his mission, he lays out for the disciples to prepare them for that road. A road that he expects his followers to be willing to follow. Of course, not in the same way, right? Jesus isn't expecting everyone to, to die on cross as a substitutionary sacrifice. That's, that's not what lies on the pathway for his disciples. But there is the pathway of suffering that those who follow must be prepared to suffer. But in that suffering, we do take comfort in knowing that Jesus knows the way. That none of this takes anything, does not take him by surprise that he carries on knowing exactly the way. Few things in life are more frustrating than following someone who doesn't know where they're going. Uh, I can think of a time, one time I was driving, trying to get to a certain destination in downtown Kansas City. And I had been to this destination before, and I, I thought I knew the way, and uh, off I went. I was, I was going along, and I took a wrong turn somewhere along the way and found myself completely lost. I, I have no idea how to get to where I need to go. That alone is, is a little bit concerning. Now, and I, and I say all this, this is, before the day, this is in the days before we had GPS on our phones, right? This is before smartphones and all that, so it's not like I just look up the directions. No, I, you're just, you don't know where you are. So there's no GPS, there's no way to guide. To make matters worse, I had someone following me whom I had told, oh yeah, I know the way, you can follow me, you can come along, yeah, we'll get there. And so we were trying to go to this event and not only was I did not knowing the way, but I was misleading others in a direction unintentionally. We got there. We eventually got there. I don't remember exactly how we all figured that out, but we eventually got there. But it certainly was not anything that I did to eventually accomplish the goal. But I got us lost. I thought I knew the way, but I, I didn't. I did not know the way. And we take comfort in knowing that this is not how it is for Jesus Christ. Jesus is not some blind, overly self-confident leader who's just making things up as you go along, just fake it till you make it type of thing. No, Jesus knows exactly what he needs to accomplish. He knows exactly where the road to Jerusalem leads, and he presses on into that because he has a mission. and He leads in that way. He knows the way because He made the way. We do not have to be fearful as His followers were, but rather we can be confident because Jesus is a trustworthy leader who knows the way. And that was true then for the disciples in that context. That's true today for us here. He leads us and He knows the way. His way is the way of self-sacrifice, and His way is the way of humility. We follow the one who knows the way. We follow the one whose way is humility. What follows in this text is, again, one of the, on the face, just one of the oddest interactions between the disciples and Jesus, right? Jesus has just said, okay, everybody, I'm going to die. This is what's coming. This is where we're going. And it's at that moment James and John decided to speak up and make this audacious request. Teacher, we want us to do for you whatever we ask of you. 
Right? They didn't just come out and, 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 and make the request at first. Right? First they say, Lord, I just, whatever we ask, and we want you to promise that you'll say yes. It's like, okay, well, what do you want? Right? He just wants to know, all right, what's, what's the request here? What do you want me to do? Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. What a request. What a thing to ask of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we want to be your right-hand men in your kingdom. Again, that, that seems like an out-of-place request in the context of death, right? But if James and John are, are, are sensing the moment here, they're sensing what they're anticipating is going to come in Jerusalem, they're still thinking of the setting up of the Messianic kingdom. That's still where their minds are. That's still what they're anticipating. So within that context, that, that, that makes sense for why they're asking this in this context. Yeah, he's talked about his death, but he also spoke of the resurrection. And surely after the resurrection, the kingdom's going to be here. His glory will be here. And that's our opportunity. That's where we want to be. At your right hand and at your left, ruling with you over your new messianic kingdom. In so many ways, this is a foolish request. Think of the arrogance, the hubris of that request. And Jesus reveals the folly of that self-seeking self-exaltation. The folly of self-exaltation. Jesus challenges them. He says to them, you do not know what you're asking. You don't know what, what, what that entails. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink this cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He gives us two word pictures to speak of what he's going to endure. He used the word of a cup that he drinks. He's used that language again in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if it's your will, pass this cup from me. And if you read throughout scriptures, more often than not, the, the concept of a cup or overflowing cup speaks of the judgment and the wrath of God that is to be poured out. This cup speaks of the experience of suffering to be endured. Are you able to have a sip of this? And then he says, are you able to endure the baptism? Of course, he's not talking about you know, John's literal water baptism, right? He's talking of something else. That word to baptize means to immerse, to dip, to plunge. There are places where this word is used to speak of an overwhelming or, or being swamped by misfortune or sorrow. We don't use the word baptize in that context, but we can, we can use that concept. Oh, I feel like I'm drowning in grief. Right? We're just completely immersed in it. Jesus says, I'm about to be plunged into something that you can't even fathom what I'm about to go through. You really want a part of this? You think you can handle that too? Can you endure that? And they say, oh yeah, sign us up. We're able to do that. We're able to take that on. Which only further underscores that they really do not know what they're asking for. You know, there's a degree, almost a degree to which you can admire their, their courage, I guess. Like, oh yeah, they're, they're bold, they're, they're confident, they're, they're courageous. But it's all going to ring rather hollow in a few chapters when they all flee the garden at Jesus' arrest. 
Where was that enthusiasm for the cup and for that baptism as they all flee? Notice how Jesus responds. Verse 39. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus tells them, you know what, you actually will suffer like me. You will endure some of this hardship. Of course, they're not going to die on the cross in a substitutionary way for the sins of the world. That's, that's not in view. But, but they are going to suffer great hardship on account of the name of Jesus Christ. If we were to fast forward several years, we would find James. He's going he's to be killed by King Herod. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. John is going to be exiled to Patmos, serving as slave labor. But, but according to church tradition, that was only after they attempted to boil him alive and he came out unscathed. So yeah, these guys are going to suffer. They are going to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are going to drink that cup and, and be baptized with that baptism. But even so, this request is still out of line. This is not something that they can just ask for. These positions of privilege aren't achieved through just suffering or, or being a disciple or by seeking a favor from the Messiah. Jesus says, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. <clears throat> Notice the uh, other disciples, <clears throat> their response, verse 41. When the ten heard it, <clears throat> they began to be indignant at James and John. indignation. Two possible reasons why they could be upset at James and John. They could have a righteous indignation. And can you believe those guys? They had the audacity to go ask Jesus for this. What an arrogant thing to do. It's not right for them to do that. It's not right to make those kinds of requests. And perhaps they could have had a righteous indignation. It's possible they could have had a jealous, a jealous indignation. I can't believe they had, to, they had the guts to ask Jesus that. That's the position that I wanted. That should be me asking for that in there. But they beat me to it. A jealous indignation. Though Mark doesn't tell us directly what's the case, I think we can infer from the context based on Jesus' response and also based on the track record of the disciples. Right, we've seen the disciples already arguing about hey, which of us is the greatest. Right? They're already jockeying for position. They're already trying to, to one-up one another and, and try to say that, yes, we have these positions of privilege. So I do believe they were upset, not because they recognized that this request was inherently sinful or inappropriate for them to ask, but because James and John had beaten them to the punch. They wanted those positions of, of, of privilege. They wanted to be Jesus' right-hand men. And so... They are upset with James and John because they got the jump on them. So this is where Jesus brings them in for another lesson. Self-exaltation 
is worldly. Look at how he responds in verse 42. Jesus called to them and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus says this whole position-seeking thing, this, this whole thing where you're trying to, to, to jockey your way into position, trying to maneuver and try to, to get your agenda going in the way that you want it to go, that's what the pagans do. That's what the world does. That, that is not for those who follow Jesus Christ. That is not the way of the Messiah. That is not how you are to act. But it's so natural for us, isn't it? This morning we're studying the book of 3rd John in our Sunday school hour. Diotrephes, he loves to have the first place. He loves to have preeminence. He wants that position of influence and authority. This is a perennial issue for, for even, certainly we see this in the world all over the place, but even within the church it's a perennial issue that we have to constantly be on guard against and crucifying the flesh in this area. Paul is going to speak again about selfishness in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well, it's supposed to keep advancing, but it's not. Look, uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Jesus is the example there as well. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Seeking your own way. Seeking your own position. Do nothing from conceit. Thinking better of yourself than you ought to think. Speaks of vying for position. Insisting on one's own way. And James is going to contrast this idea, this this concept of of having this selfish ambition. He's going to contrast that with wisdom from above in James chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Then he goes on to say, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Selfish ambition. Pursuing positions of influence and authority for the sake of your own arrogance. Seeking to get your own way. James says that's the fruit of demonic influence. This is serious stuff. This is weighty, weighty things. Jesus says that's how the pagans operate. That's how the world operates. That's that's how they operate and try to get into their own positions of authority and power. But it is not how it should be among you. Verse 43, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I don't know if that instruction sounds familiar to you or not, but as we've walked through this text, Jesus has touched on these things several times 
He's come back to that. Chapter 9, after we saw this second teaching on his death, they were traveling and Jesus asked them, what are you discussing along the way? And it turns out they're arguing about which of them is to be the greatest. And so he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And again, last week, as we came to that conclusion of the passage, the teaching about the rich young ruler and the information there, verse 31 says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. But here are the disciples. Here they are, still seeking their own agendas, still seeking to establish themselves in their own positions of privilege and power and authority. Jesus says, you want to be great? You want to be great in the kingdom? You want a position of of privilege at my right hand? Go to the back of the line. Get your serving clothes on. Get your hands dirty. Scrub those toilets. Carry the load. Be the servant of all and the slave of all. One of the most important qualities in a leader is that of humility. Humility is also one of those qualities that's really hard to self-assess whether or not you had it. Just when you think you have it, poof, it's gone, right? Oh, yes, I'm a very humble person. (laughs) Sounds a little prideful. You're prideful in your own humility. Moses was that guy who wrote of himself, oh, yes, Moses was the most humble person on the face of the earth. Yes, says Moses. Yeah, I, I don't think any one of us could make that statement truthfully, right? But show me a humble person, and I'll show you someone who is great in the kingdom of God. Show me a humble person, and I will show you someone who has true leadership potential. There's a great lack of humility in the world today. Great lack of humility in the world. For some reason, a a few months ago, I decided to try to be a little more active on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. And what I found there, I had had not been active on there for a while, then I got back on there, and I just was completely shocked at the way some Christian leaders were interacting with others on that platform. I saw regular name-calling, whining about being blocked. I saw mockery. I saw different forms of bombastic statements. Why? Individuals that, that uh, I, I read their books, and it's like, oh, man, they, you know, they have great insight into the Word of God, and yet they're, they're out here interacting in this way that is not befitting of the name of Christ. But it creates engagement. It drives up those those, those interaction numbers helps the algorithm. I've got to have more followers so I can have more influence. And that is the key word, influence. Social media influencers, right? That's a, that's a, that's a job now, right? Yeah. But it comes from pride. Unbecoming of a leader in Christ's church. Because again, Jesus says that's what the world does. That's how they operate. And we see this in our world today, don't we? 
Right, we see this wherever, wherever we go. We see this operating in different, different spheres, whether it's the workplace or whether it's in the political realm or, or wherever else in education. All this, these different places, we find this thing happening. I think of our political system right now, it's, just, it's driven by hubris and by, and by big personalities. We flock around these charismatic personalities, and this is true, I find it by observation, no matter what ends of the political spectrum we find ourselves. We need to pray that the Lord would grant us humble and morally upright and biblically wise leaders. The truth is, we can look at different things going on out there, and we can decry all of the pride that's out there in the world, but we need to be careful that we are not looking to remove specks before we've removed logs out of our own eyes. We need to take careful, hard, long looks in the mirror at our own pride in our own lives. How the world functions is not how Christ's disciples are to function. We are not to pursue seeking our own positions, trying to self-promote ourselves and to put ourselves into positions of, of influence and positions. No, but we are to serve others. Jesus calls us to follow the way of service. Follow the one whose way is service. Whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. And then we get to verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus provides them with Himself as the prime example of what this looks like to live this out within our lives. Jesus is not out here, He's not one of these teachers that says, you know, uh, do what I say and not what I do, right? He's, he's not out there with that kind of mentality. He, he is leading by example. He isn't instructing us to do something that He has been unwilling to do Himself. No, He has been the servant of all. Not even the Son of Man. Not even Jesus Christ. Not even the Messiah. The, the only one who could have ever rightfully laid claim to the throne. The only one who could have ever rightly said, this is mine, I deserve this, and been 100% correct. The only one who, gen, uh, who genuinely has an inherent right to rule. Not even the Son of Man. Not even the Messiah Himself came to be served, but rather to serve. And we think that we have the right to seek those kinds of positions for ourselves when not even Jesus Christ did that. It's the height of arrogance. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't stop with service, but He gave His life as a ransom for many. That word ransom speaks of a purchase price paid. And of course, it's a reference to the substitutionary death of Christ that He is going to die. Jesus is our supreme example of service and self-sacrifice. 
And so for this reason, Mark 10, 45 is rightly viewed, and widely and rightly considered to be the key verse in the book of Mark. It is the verse that, that summarizes the ministry of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. So it's a verse that is worth memorizing. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus is not taking the easy road. The road is marked with suffering. It is the way of humility and service, but it is the only road worth walking. And we have the comfort of knowing that Jesus knows the way because He made the way. We have the comfort of knowing that we do not walk alone. And we have the comfort of knowing that we follow a Savior who has gone on before us and is led by example in the very things that He instructs us to be and do. So I close with the words from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Father, I thank you so much for this passage, for this text. Thank you so much for the example of Jesus Christ. Lord, I do pray against pride in each and every one of our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would not be seeking to maneuver ourselves into positions of influence or or authority or seeking, Lord, to uh, lord over others. Lord, may we all seek the way of service and self-sacrifice. Lord, I thank you that Jesus gives us this example of himself as he goes to the cross, as he goes to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose again from the dead. Lord, I thank you that it is through Jesus Christ and the the spirit that you give that we can follow Christ faithfully, that we can live in such a way that that honors and glorifies Christ, that, that follows these instructions and this example that he has given us. Lord, I pray that we would all pursue service to one another for the sake of the gospel of Christ and for the sake of glorifying you. I pray all of this in the name of Christ.